take our Bibles this morning, and we want to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going through the book of Colossians and asking ourselves the question, why not Jesus? We all follow someone, or we all follow something, so why not Jesus? Now, for many of you, it may not even seem like a, a really pertinent question, but if you've shared Christ with the world, and you've been outside of the church walls just visiting with people, they have to be asking that question. I mean, after all, why would a person, for example, leave America and go to a third world country to spend the rest of his life ministering? I have a friend like that. He's been there in a third world country for about 15 years. He's been over there. So what about that? Who would, who would take money out of their income and give to the church? Why would you take your time as busy as you are serving in the church or outside the church, doing something for the homeless or doing something for the community. And you're thinking to yourself, why would you, why would you do that? And I think the biggest question is this, why would you give up your will and give your will over to someone that you cannot see? Why Jesus? Why would you follow Jesus? Then I would ask, why not Jesus? After all, many of you here that probably tried so many things. Uh, it's like the book of Ecclesiastes that we referenced last week. We talked about Solomon, the King Solomon, who was, uh, the Bible says, the wisest man to ever live. He's one, certainly one of the richest of all, of all time. And he tried everything. The book of Ecclesiastes is about that. How he tried pleasure. That didn't satisfy. He tried apathy. He didn't, you know, that didn't settle it. I mean, maybe he was, I don't know, watching TV all day or you know, playing video games. I don't know. He was just, just trying, giving up on life, basically. That didn't work for him. And he tried marrying a lot of people, a lot of girls. He had 300 wives, 700 concubines. I'm not even going to talk about what that is. That means he had, now listen, a thousand mother-in-laws. How was that bliss for him? Well, that didn't work for him. And so he was in a situation, and this is why it's so valuable to read that book. He was in a situation that you and I will probably never be in. And that is he was so rich and he had so many opportunities and he was so smart that he could really pretty much try everything in life. And he came to the conclusion, all is vanity. And so why not Jesus? We open up the book of Colossians and we said last week that Paul really didn't, the writer of this book, really didn't start the church. He was probably in Ephesus at the time, and he didn't plant that church and sent Epaphras over to Colossae, just a few miles away. And Epaphras started that church, and it wasn't very old. And Paul is writing from a prison cell, and he's writing because he's concerned that even though they had started off so well, they were allowing false doctrine to come into the church false teachers to come in. And they were teaching worshiping of angels and worshiping of knowledge. In fact, one of the biggest problems in there is just the wisdom of men. They were philosophers, just philosophizing of life and looking at life from a perspective of maybe God didn't exist. And so, uh, so where, do, where do we go from here? And so we look at this, and I'll just read one of the, one of the verses to you. In Colossians 2.8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty conceit. Or deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. And so we even went over last week the difference between the wisdom of man 
and the wisdom of God. James talks about that. And let me just describe the wisdom of man. He says it's earthly in chapter 3, James chapter 3. It's earthly. And that is, we've said that means it really just comes from the world and the people of the world. And the centuries that we'll go over in a couple of weeks, but the centuries of one philosophy building on another. And then he says, not only that, it's unnatural. Now, in the original language, it just simply, it means, rather, it's unspiritual. It means it's natural. It just comes from your mind. And then he says, it's also demonic. And so, where do we get these thoughts? Where do we get the idea of different things going on in life? How, where do we get our ideas of God outside of the Bible? It's demonic. And so we said that because it's the wisdom of men, that we ought to at least scrutinize everything that comes down the pike that is not from the Bible. Because the Bible says the wisdom of God is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So we open up this passage and really, verse 15 is the central focus verse, probably of the whole book, where it says, He is, Jesus, is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's first place. This whole passage, and really the theme of the whole book, is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the first place. He does not finish in first place. You know, it's always popular to follow a winner. But he doesn't finish in first place. He is first place, it says, in all things. And so preeminent, superior, he holds first place in all things. In what areas? Where it says he does it in revelation, in creation, and then in salvation as we get some new insights, I think, to that as well. And so as we look at this, I want us to present these three things. And I want to answer the question, who is the real Jesus? Are you, you say, well, I'm worshiping Jesus. I'm following Jesus. That's who I'm following. Okay, then I'll ask you. As this passage addresses, are you following the real Jesus? Let me show you what I mean by that. He's superior in Revelation chapter 15 says, he's the image of the invisible God. Now God's invisible. That makes it tough to really understand him. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we need to look at the life of Jesus Christ. Very difficult to understand someone that's invisible. Now the second commandment back in the book of Exodus and then repeated in the book of Deuteronomy says that we should not make any graven image and worship it. Now, a graven image is a statue. It could be a statue of uh, any kind of animal, any kind of person that you might want to worship. And we don't do a lot of that in this country. It, it does happen all over the world still. And in this country, sometimes we have a statue and we say we're worshiping God through that image. Well, that's what the second commandment really speaks against. We are supposed to worship a God of the invisible. Why? Because if we do not, if we make an image of him, then what we're doing, not only limiting him, but we're creating something that probably is not. We're not really creating something that is real. And we have a tendency to create a God in our own image. We just do. Now, we, have, we don't have images. We have pictures of Jesus, you know, snapshots against heaven or something. And we have pictures of Jesus, and there's always kind of this look with the long flowing hair and the blue eyes. And, and, you know, it's in your Sunday school literature. I remember Thomas Skinner once saying that the reason why he did not become a Christian at a very young age is because of these pictures of Jesus. Because he said, that man would not last an hour in my neighborhood. And so we have our own pictures of what Jesus ought to be. But 
what do we do? We create something in our own image, but we do that. We create our own realities in life. It's not just about God. It's about a lot of different things. For example, in your marriage, I've known people who come to me for marriage counseling over the years, and really it's pretty obvious after four or five years of marriage, they had no idea who they were marrying. Now, I know that we can kind of hide things, get married too soon, but really, they looked at their spouse as something that they wanted them to be. And even in the dating relationship, they excused this and didn't excuse that, and they molded them something in their imagination of who they were really, and they weren't that person. And they're suddenly realizing four or five years into the marriage, they don't know who they married. Why do we do that? Well, we want to control the situation. Sometimes it's not even controlling the person. We want to control reality. We want to control what's going on in life. And we can do that if we manipulate those that are closest to us. In other words, if I think this person is one thing, I'm going to treat them in a different manner. We do that with God. Look, to me, God's just this, and he's this, and he can't do this, and my God would never do that. J.I. Packer, the uh, former, the late theologian said, if you start off a sentence, I'd like to think, I'd like to think of God as... You probably all ignore that sentence. You cannot trust that sentence because what you're doing is saying, I'm, I'm pulling off my thoughts, my wisdom, my imagination, and you can't trust any of that, particularly your imagination. How many times have you imagined something happening and it never happened? Somebody breaking into your house. You imagine something going on in a relationship that isn't even there. We cannot trust our thoughts. We can't always trust our imagination, but we create this God that we can live with, that we can, that we can tolerate. You know, he's, he's this, he's all loving, maybe he's all merciful, or maybe you're on the other end. He's just all wrathful in judgment, and he's going to get those people. You know, he's not going to get me, he's going to get them. And you create something that is not real. And there are people who have come to know Christ, or they think, they've prayed a prayer, they've walked an aisle, they've given their heart to God, but they've given their heart to God for a God that's not even there. It's not the real Jesus. It's not the real God. And they go into it four or five years later, probably less time than that, and they think to themselves, oh my goodness, how in the world can I live the Christian life? It's not anything like the Bible says at all. No, you're reading into the Bible. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, who was a missionary for many, many years, wrote many books and, and as she got older. And in one of her books on the second commandment, I can't remember if it was a book or a story, but on the second commandment, she was talking about not making any graven image. And she said, I came to the place in my life where I was, had created a God of my, uh, my own imagination. And really what I had created was an assistant. My assistant. God, you've got to do what I want you to do. If you don't do what I want you to do, maybe I need to get a new assistant. Or maybe I need to, I haven't trained you properly enough in order for you to, to produce like I want you to produce. Now you can imagine, here's a God who created the universe. He created this world. Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day, ascended up into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and we're expecting him to be our assistant. That's her point. We create something in our own mind. What does the Bible teach about Jesus? This passage is wonderful about concerning that subject. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. The Bible says in Exodus, he said, he cannot see my face for man shall not see me 
and live. We are introduced, if you don't know this or not, or as yet, we are introduced to the fact that there are invisible things in life. He goes on to say that he's Lord of the invisible. God is invisible. The Bible says for us to look upon the face of God, we would die. And so what did God do? God sent an image of himself, an icon of himself. The Bible says in Hebrews, he sent an exact representation of himself. In other words, the Bible presents Jesus as God coming to this earth, representing the Trinity and living before us and revealing to us who God is. Then after he ascended up into heaven, he trusts us by giving us the word of God that we can know the wisdom of God and know about God and really know the true Jesus. He says he is the icon, the image. Listen to John chapter one. The apostle John said it this way. In the beginning was the word, and we'll find out later in the passage that the word is Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Then later in verse 18, he says, no one has seen God. No one has seen God. The only God who was not, who, who was at the father's side, he has made him known. I love what the original Greek says. He has revealed him. He's, he's been the revelation of him. He's revealed him to us. Hebrews chapter uh, one tells us the same thing, that he's the exact representation of the father. John 14 says, whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the father. Because you say to me, show us the father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ reveals God to us. He is the king of creation. He is the real Jesus, Lord over creation. Look what he says. For by him all things were created in him. They're by him. And our earth, visible and invisible. Whether it's visible or invisible, he has created them. In fact, we look in verse 15, back in verse 15, it says, the firstborn of all creation. And so not only do we find that he is superior in revelation, but also he's superior in creation as well. He's first place as a creator, but he's first place because he has done the creating. Now it says here in verse 15 that he is the firstborn of all creation. Some people would interpret that as saying, well, Jesus must have been created. But in other places, it says nothing was created. Nothing was created unless it was created by Jesus Christ. But listen um, to what Psalm 89 says. He says about David, King David, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David wasn't even the firstborn of his own family. And so firstborn can not only mean that he was the first, but firstborn in superiority, in status. David was the most important person, really, maybe in the Old Testament. He was the first place. Again, why would God put it this way? Why would Paul write it this way? He was trying to tell us Jesus Christ is first place in not only revelation, but also creation. It says he created it in him, through him, for him, the visible and the invisible. Again, there's, there's just invisible things in this world. You can't see the wind. You, can't, you really can't see it, but you can see the effects of it. The same idea, and unless 
perfect analogy there is with God. You cannot see God, but you can see the effects of God. Why can't we see God? The Bible says, well, if we see him, we'll die. We see him face to face on this earth because we're sinners. And when the unholy touches the holy, something dies. And we'll come to that in just a moment in this passage. And so as we look at this, we find that Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that you just can't see. Faith is a matter of knowing that there's invisibilities. Look, look at this as visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he's talking about angels and demons here, through all, through all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created, the visible, the invisible. Notice it says in verse 17, he sustains all things and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he created the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's preeminent in the church as well. He is the head of the church. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that Jesus Christ, not the pastor, is the head of the church, and that's true. And we think about head being leader, but listen, head means also the brains. Have you ever heard this comment before? Man, he's the brains of the outfit. Well, Jesus is the brains of the church. He is the wisdom of the church. He is the knowledge of the church. One thing that Paul is trying to tell the church at Colossae, these false doctrines are coming in. These false teachers are coming in. You need to know that they are not from God. Jesus Christ himself is the brains of the outfit. He is the head. That's where we develop the wisdom. And it's talking here all through this passage, the preeminence of Christ, that he is Lord over all. He's Lord in the revelation. He is Lord and preeminent. And he is first place in the creation. And then as we look at this passage, Real quickly, it says in verse 19, for in him, he says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Romans 14 says this, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For we live, we live unto the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we, are, we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, and he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The real Jesus, the real one. One of the leadership lessons I often teach, uh, I mention four things, four questions that John Maxwell has, uh, says we ask every time before we follow somebody. Four questions. Before you think to yourself, am I going to follow that leader? You're going to ask yourself four questions. Number one, where are you going? Number two, do you want to go with you with them? Number three, can that person get you there? And finally, number four, will you burn them? Before you follow Jesus, you're going to ask these four questions. They're going to be in your mind. Now, I know that you have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in your life that's changed your desires and changed your walk of life and changed what you want and changed your thought life. But still, you basically ask these four questions. Jesus, where are you going? Well, you know where he's going. He's going to take you to a place of abundance in your life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control. Then when you die, he's going to take you to heaven. Man, that's a good thing. So the, the third question is, I'm skipping the second one for just a moment. But the third question would be, can he get you there? 
Well, yes, he died on the cross for you. Well, then, then fourthly, will he burn you? And you know, you've been burned by leaders before, probably maybe even by a pastor before. Well, once he gets you there, is he gonna burn you in some way? Is he gonna leave you behind? Is he gonna leave you in such a way that you feel abandoned? Well, no, the Bible says that God is always faithful. Jesus is always faithful. faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Otherwise, he would deny himself. So the second question is the only one that's really pertinent. And that is, are you willing to go with him? Do you want to go with him? He is God. He's the image of, his, of, the, of the God Almighty. He is the creator of all things, including you, the universe, the earth, but you. He created you. And he is the head of the church. So thirdly, superior in revelation, superior in creation. Finally, as we park here for just a moment, superior in salvation. Just a few moments ago, Tim read the scripture. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Here we find something in this passage that really reveals something to us very precious, even all the way through the Bible, even the Old Testament. It says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Well, it says we need reconciliation. And reconciliation means that you are hostile as two individuals and someone is reconciling you or bringing you back together. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. I may not be receiving the real Jesus. I may not have really understood who he was in the beginning, but I'm not, I'm not an enemy of God. Well, here's what Romans 10, 5, 10 says. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He says, we're enemies. He says, well, that doesn't, I don't know, that's kind of strong. And I think it is, to at least to us. But when you think about it, I'm sure the false teachers in the church at Colossae, very small church, were thinking, hey, we're friends of God. We're doing the right things, but they were influencing people in the wrong direction. What about us? You know, we go through life and we don't know the Lord and we're going by the wisdom of this world and, and just whatever, like, like getting our philosophies of life like germs off the street. Who are we influencing? There's our children, our grandchildren. We influence our neighbors our friends at work, everywhere we go, we're influencing people away from the gospel and not to the gospel. He says, you were enemies and doing the things that were extremely displeasing to God. But he says in this, that God has come to reconcile you. Now there's a lot of Old Testament imagery here. And Paul pulls from it from almost every book, even though we don't see it plain in this passage. But in the tabernacle of the Old Testament and in the temple as well, there was a, a certain thing that God did, and boy, it was elaborate. Read about it. You read about it in the book of Leviticus. Elaborate sacrifice. Elaborate. You got to do it just this way. Well, if you wanted to get into the, well, the outer court was where the Gentiles and Jews could go. 
the inner court is where the sacrifices were made. And then the holy place, if you went there, you really had to get cleaned up. All kinds of ceremonial laws, the washing of the hands and the washing of the feet and the washing of the body and the washing of the clothes. It was so elaborate. In fact, if you were in line, and I'm not sure there was ever a line to get into the holy place, but if you were in line, you couldn't move. You couldn't go home. So well, while I'm waiting, you know, you hold my place in line, I'm gonna go get a, I'm gonna get a Diet Coke or something. I can't go home. I just get dirty again. I'd have to do it all over again. In fact, no matter how clean you were, I guarantee you that if you walked into that holy place after being cleansed and standing there for just a moment, you'd still carry germs in the holy place with you. Why did God do all that? Why did he make it so difficult? Well, he was trying to show us how difficult it is to get spiritually clean. Jesus is a king. Matthew presents him as that. This book presents him as the king and Lord. Kingdoms have rules. Uh, Tim Keller, several years ago, brought this out, and I thought it was really good at kind of comparing human law to God's laws. Here's what he says about human law. Here's what he says. He says there's a purpose in human laws. There's a content to human law. And then finally, there's a result of human law. The purpose is so we can live together. You have laws in order for you to keep in, you and I keep in our boundaries, in order for you to keep our lane, as we say today. And uh, you, you have laws and the content of those laws that we, we are demanded in these laws, demanded that we treat one another right. And the result of that is a punishment if we do a crime. Well, God's laws are much the same in a way. There's a purpose to it. That is that we have a peace and a fellowship with God to live with him. There's a content of it. That is, we treat God for who he is and no less, and that he is Lord of the universe, and we worship him as God. And there's a result. If we do not obey that, and none of us can within our own self, what happens? There's a punishment. There's a separation from God. There are consequences involved. Now, I've been asked this before. Why can't, why can't we just, why did Jesus have to die? Why can't we just say, well, God, I'm really sorry about that. Would you forgive me? We do that to humans, right? Well, here's the difference. When you're, when you're sinning against a human, you can do something against them that would actually be a crime and you have to be punished for it. But there are other things you do that are not really a crime. For example, you gossip about somebody. You know, you, maybe you cut somebody off in, in traffic. Those aren't really crimes that I know of. And so you go to that person and you say, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Usually that doesn't work out for you because there's some, some kind of restitution that has to be made a lot of times in our life. But we can do that. Nobody has to die for that. But there are other crimes or the other sins that we sin against one another. They, they are, there are laws, depending on the country, there are laws against that. And once you break that law, you are so, supposedly at least be punished as you're caught for that crime. In God's laws, there are no little bitty, bitty sins. All of them cannot be glossed over with an I'm sorry. Somebody has to pay for that. Notice the path, the blood of the cross. In the Old Testament, 
I, I don't have time to go into all the sacrifices this morning, but on the Day of Atonement, they took a goat and um, the priest, the high priest, would lay his hands on the goat. And as he prayed over the nation of Israel, he was putting and placing the sins of Israel for the coming year onto the goat, and then they would slaughter the goat. The Old Testament teaches us any time the unholy touches the holy, something dies. Something dies. We can find this in the Ark of the Covenant. In that, in that tabernacle, there was a, a holy place, and then there was that holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that's where, that's where the presence of God was in the nation of Israel. And there's a place in the Bible where it says anybody touches that Ark, they're going to die immediately because you're coming face to face with God. One man did that. He was trying to steady the ark when it was about to, to fall. He steadied it. When he touched it, he died immediately. When the whole unholy reaches out to the holy, something dies. When the holy reaches out to the unholy, something dies. We can see it on Mount Sinai. We can see it in the New Testament. Remember that story about the woman with an issue of blood? We don't know what was wrong with her, but she had uh, some kind of blood disorder, and she was bleeding on the inside. And the Bible says that as Jesus was walking along, she lunged and grabbed the hem of his garment. And he turned around immediately and said, somebody touch me. Who touched me? And the disciple says, well, you know, Lord, everybody's touching you. What do you mean? Somebody touched you. No, somebody touched me and virtue has gone out of me. You might say something died within Jesus that day. He took on that woman's infirmity. She was healed, but virtue, power had gone out of him. And so what do we see this as a result? He says in verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus took on your sins and mine on the cross. It was as though God in heaven, the Father, was laying his hands on the head of Jesus Christ and praying for the church, both at that juncture, those disciples that were around, and every, every person that would ever receive Christ into the future, and laying our sins upon the head of Jesus as he died on the cross. At one point on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, as he stood there on the cross, he took on your sins and mine. He was the sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Why? Why would he do that? Look at verse 22. In order, that's the purpose, in order to, in order, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We just see a diagram up here. You've seen it before. I've, I've kind of gone over this. It starts off, our life starts off, our, our human beings start off with God's design for our life. God's design is we have perfect fellowship with him, that we be, as it says in here, holy and blameless and above reproach, above attack from the lost world. In other words, we're not only living it, but people see that we're living it. Then we sinned against God. There was a brokenness in our life. And we know the world's broken. Many of you are broken today. Many of you are just torn apart on the inside. And so the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died on the cross. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Now God is bringing back 
us to his original design, to be holy, to be blameless before man and before him. To have that kind of fellowship, that kind of doctrine, of wisdom, of knowledge in our life. This church was in danger of slipping away from all that. And notice it says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. It looks like to me in verse 23, you could be saved and lose it. Well, that's not the, even the essence of the book. The book is saying this. The book is saying, look, Christ is the preeminent one. He is first place. Now, let me ask you, church at Colossae, is he first place in your life? He's, he's first place in creation. He's first place in revelation. He's first place in salvation. He's first place in the church. Is he first place in your life? Have you followed the real Jesus? Because if you have not been stable and shifting around from gospel to gospel, from news to news, you might say, then it proves that you've never received the real Jesus. Other passages in the Bible talks about a list of sins. If you're, if you're committing these sins and practicing these sins, rather, then you can never enter the kingdom of God. It's not saying in those passages that because you're doing this, God's going to cut you off. It just says in that passage, those passages, that if you're doing these things, practicing these things, it's an evidence there that the Holy Spirit of God has never come to live inside your life. And he says, hey, we need to come and center in our lives on the real Jesus as Lord of our life, as master of our lives. Why, why not follow Jesus? He is God. Why not follow Jesus? He created you. Why not follow Jesus? He died on the cross for your sins. Why not follow Jesus? He is ever to make intercession for you. He's praying for you even right now and praying for me. Why not follow Jesus? In fact, our life ought to be like Ron Dunn says. You know, if we, if we uh, for example, uh, some of you have bought houses before, homes, and uh, maybe you were looking. Uh, I remember one time Pam and I were looking at a, a spec home, and uh, it was all locked up. And so what, what do you do when it's all locked up? It's a spec. Nobody's living there. I hope nobody's living there, you know. You hope. Because you're, you're looking in the windows. And so you hope no, nobody's there. And, of course, they're not. But you look into the bedroom window, and you see one aspect of the house, one angle of the house. You look in, in another window, and it's the living room of the house, a different angle altogether. And another, another window, and it's, it's the kitchen. And, and you say, wow, you know, we could look at it and say, oh, the whole house is a kitchen. No, we're looking at it from different angles and different windows. The living room, the, the den, the bedroom, everything has a different angle. And he's saying this, when you're living holy and above reproach, blameless, he says, the whole world ought to look into your life at every angle, in every window, and see Jesus, the real Jesus. And when we walk with him, we'll learn what's right, we'll scrutinize false doctrine, and we'll live the fruit of the Spirit and be in the path of blessing in our life. Now, what about you today? Could you say beyond any doubt, hey, I, I know I received the real Jesus. Or maybe you were thinking to yourself, you know, I wasn't watching, I wasn't listening. Hey, you know, you're human. And you were looking at it. I was looking for something particularly, 
particular in my life that I needed at that time, and Jesus seemed to be that answer. And so I received what I wanted Jesus to be, but I did not receive the real Jesus. If that's the plight of your life, then I would invite you today to receive the real Jesus in your life. And then you that are believers today, and you know you have the real Jesus, but yet you vacillate back and forth, back and forth. Could you pray as you're praying the prayer of Jabez that God would bless you indeed, God would enlarge your borders, anoint you with the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you from temptation as you're praying that. Would you pray, God, would you put me in the path where you could afford to answer that prayer in my life? I challenge you to do that today as we pray together. With heads bowed, eyes closed this morning, um, if you've never received Christ or maybe you thought you've been baptized, I mean, after all, you're a member of the church, you've been baptized, but no, you, you've been so disappointed with God because it's really not the God, the Christ that you thought you received. Would you receive the real Jesus he deserves our worship. He deserves us following him. He is God. He is the creator. And he has saved you, died on the cross for you. Paid the price. Would you receive him today by praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross, sending Jesus to the cross to die on the cross for my sins. I thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that he created the world and created me and brought me to this point, brought me to this place of understanding who he really is. And I want to receive the real Jesus in my life, the real Jesus in my heart, so I can be all that I need to be in this life. And I pray to that end. I pray that Jesus would come into me right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.